at the one year mark of us working together, I, I really was starting to come to the harsh realization that maybe this was a mistake. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. This episode continues our interview with Leanne Miko, which ended in the last episode with Leanne realizing that the succession plan she was part of just wasn't going to work out. If you haven't listened to part one, be sure to check it out. You just were not on the same page at that point, you know, and and that's a harsh realization after a year of working towards something and, you know, essentially having nothing to show for it. And so when you said that you weren't on the same page with her, was that just about the retirement and things like that? Or was it more than that, like the practice and how she approached her work with clients or all of that? I, I, you know, it definitely, you know, a big part of it was that nothing was happening in terms of the succession and and the buyout. But it was also, you know, you don't see the inner workings of someone's company until you actually get in there, right? You don't see how they work with clients, what their relationship is like, the services they offer, how they deal with things um, until you're in it. And, you know, I just, I think, you know, I realized that we were kind of coming at it from two different perspectives and we just weren't on the same page, which made me realize that it was going to be a little tricky you know, once I started working with her clients for that, you know, that transition was going to be tricky because I, you know, I did things differently. I, I provided services differently. I communicated differently. And whether that was a good thing or a bad thing compared to the way she did it, it was different, no less. And I was concerned that that may affect the relationship I had with the clients moving forward. So did clients know that you were going to be the succession plan? It was never announced um, I think most of them figured out what was going on. I mean, she she was older, you know, she was in her 60s and, and you know, here I was a young person coming in and, you know, it was never officially announced to them, but I, I think they picked up and they realized, okay, we see what's happening here. You're introducing us to this new person that's with the firm. Um, we get it. But, you know, again, it was never made official. This is so interesting to me. So you're, you so you decide that, this isn't working out. What were those conversations like with her? Intense. In one word, intense. Um, you know, because we were coming at it from such different angles, um, it was hard, again, to get back on that same page. You know, the way I was seeing things going or not going versus the way she was seeing things going or not going. We just, they were, there were quite a few conversations where she had these expectations of me that she never actually conveyed to me. So I was obviously not meeting them and vice versa. And so, you know, it was just that lack of communication, right? They just, hey, this is what she was expecting of me. And, you know, I'm here, I am failing at this objective because I didn't know it existed kind of thing. So like, what are examples of that, if you don't mind sharing? You know, one one thing that uh, was expected of me was to bring in a certain amount of new um, assets under management over a period of time. Um, I didn't find out what that I didn't find out there was a number until I think 10 months, 11 months in. And so by that point, it was it was a goal that she had set that I would bring in X number of 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 new client or new accounts with X number of dollars within 15 months. And there we are at like the 10 or 11 month mark. And I haven't, I haven't done anything because I didn't know, you know, that was what she was expecting of me, you know, that in conjunction with some contradictory, you know, 
statements that were made in the past. I it was just again the miscommunication, the lack of understanding, the fact that all of these conversations were either in person, um, well mostly in person, and there was actually no nothing in writing, no official anything was really the undoing at the end. Was it just doomed from the beginning, do you think? Or were there, I mean, looking back, like for a new advisor kind of entering into a situation like that, what would be your advice to them? Get things in writing. (laughs) (laughs) Always get things in writing. Um, You know, I I don't know that it was necessarily doomed from the start. I think the intentions were there and I, and I think we both wholeheartedly thought um, that things were going to go differently. And I would say probably around the six month mark is when the red flags and the, the spidey senses started to, to go off in my head where I started to really question um, whether this was going to actually happen and if it was a good idea. But I figured at that point, I had spent six months making virtually no money and working my butt off and committed to this that I was not going to give in and just throw in the towel. I was I wanted to move forward and see what was going to happen. And, you know, at the end of the day, it it didn't happen. But I would rather say that I gave it 100 percent effort and went through with it than just throwing in the towel halfway through. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. What was your mindset at that point looking forward to your future? <laughs> uh, that was that was a, a very trying, manic couple of days. Um, you know, I, I'd come to the understanding and accepted the fact there was a good chance that this was going to fall apart before it, it got anywhere at that point. And I had resolved myself to the fact that there was a good chance that was going to happen and that it was okay. If, if we parted ways, it would be okay. I would, I would go on my own way. And I, in one of my, my very lengthy emails to her trying to, to figure out what was going on, I, I said that to her. I said, if you don't see this working, please let's have a conversation about it so I can get my ducks in a row and move on and do what I need to do. And so I, I, had, I, had, I knew that was a distinct possibility that still didn't prepare me for the conversation where it ultimately uh, everything imploded, right? It was uh, it was a Friday morning, and and just like every quarter for the past four quarters, I I was you know I showed up, and we were going to do our quarterly planning, set up kind of review the last quarter, set up our projections and our tasks and whatnot for the the coming quarter, and um, you know, with no sign of anything, I mean, even sending me emails the day in the days prior, having to do with you know client matters. I, I didn't suspect anything, and, and what I got was a 20-minute talking to of, of how she wanted to go a different direction, and this wasn't what she was looking for, um, among some other things that I, I probably should not discuss, um, <laughs> and uh, was handed a piece of paper that said, uh, you know, in 30, you know, this is my 30 days to wrap up all my outstanding affairs affiliated with her company, and that, and that was that. You know, so that was Friday morning at 9 a.m. And so I uh, I basically spent the weekend, like I said, manic, one minute laughing myself hysterical of what just happened, and then the next minute crying frantically trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Oh, my goodness. That's – it's such a reality of this business. 
And it's so, I wish, I wish it wasn't, you know what I mean? I I do know. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) Okay. So let's look back at that time because that was about a year ago, right? Yeah, that was uh, almost a year ago to the date. It was October, I want to say 7th or 9th of 2016. So you're a year removed from that. What do you wish you would have known at that time? That's a good question. I mean, obviously, I wish I'd had a crystal ball to tell me what was going to happen. <laughs> but we all know that's not reality. Um, I guess I just, I wish I had known more about how that process works of buying a firm and, and the succession planning I wish I had understand, I had understood, you know, who's responsible for what and what the process looks like and how it goes and, and ways that I could have, you know, aided in the process. I mean, I even called the uh, the firm that, that she was planning to use to do the valuation and spoke with them to try and, you know, get their perspective on what I should do as the buyer. Like, that's how far I went to figure out how can we make this happen? What is stalling? What's going on? How do I, how do I aid this process? You know, and so I just I wish I had been more informed on that on that aspect of it. And, you know, what's funny is that in the time since then, I have seen so many webinars and so many FPA meetings centered around this exact topic. And I'm like, where were you two years ago? <laughs> I really could have used, you know, this guidance. Um, that's probably the number one thing I wish I had known. And so did you still go into work for those 30 days? I had to. I had outstanding uh, plans that I was working on. I had outstanding work I was, I was taking care of. And so, you know, I reached out to all of, you know, and in the time I was working there, I did bring on a few um, financial planning clients. And so for all of those clients that, that were technically my clients, I basically, you know, uh, spoke with them all over the phone, kind of explained in, in very simple terms what was going on. And, um, you know, they all, they all had options as to what they were going to do moving forward. And I kind of laid it all out to them and, and then, uh, you know, spent the next 30 days finishing up what I could and, and closing out any, you know, uh, open engagements and tying up loose ends. And um, I was able to, to get it all done and, and wash my hands of it and, and finally kind of get that, you know, new start that I needed. You were able to take your clients. Were you thinking of starting your own firm at this point? Or was it just more of you were just so overwhelmed with everything that was happening? So, you know, this originally happened, um, you know, the conversation where everything unfolded was a Friday morning. And like I said, I spent that weekend manic trying to figure out what I was going to do. You know, on the one hand, I could uh, start my own firm. And on the other hand, I could go work for someone else. And having knowing, having known what I know about myself in terms of how I work with people and what a control freak I am, I realized that probably was not my best bet because it, I'd likely get fired for the first time in my life. Because <laughs> I, you know, I'm in my early 30s, I'm pretty set in my ways. And you know, I'm, I'm somewhat, uh, you know, like I said, stuck in my ways and a little, you know, unwilling to change certain things, you know, I, I'm very confident in what I believe. And I knew that does not make for a good employee. And so recognizing that, um, you know, I was like, well, I, you know, the only other real option is to start my own firm. But do I have both the mental, emotional wherewithal and the financial means to do this? You know, what does this mean for me financially? Because I've spent the last year, um, you know, li- basically living just above the poverty line, and what is that going to mean? You know, how, how many months can I afford to do this any longer? You know, kind of what's, what's that, that, that point where I have to throw in the towel and is it worth it? And, 
And, you know, did, did I have the confidence at the time to, to put myself out there? And so, you know, Monday morning rolled around and I ended up talking with three of her clients that I had grown really close to and was working very closely with. And, you know, they knew what was going on. She had emailed all of her clients I was working with to, you know, <laughs> very uh, simplistically state, I was no longer with the firm. That's all it was. Um, <laughs> no anything. And so I spoke with them all and, you know, they, they had actually reached out to me after, you know, I, you know, I'd sent a very nice email saying it was wonderful working with them and, and, you know, wish them well. And, and actually three of them called me in the next two days and, you know, they were all so encouraging and so wonderful, you know, just encouraging me to, to keep doing what I was doing and, and that, you know, praising me and, and our work together that, you know, that was the confidence booster that I needed to say, okay, clearly I'm doing something right here. If the three of them went out of their way to call me and tell me how much they enjoyed working with me and how much they benefited from it, like clearly I've got something here. And so that, that really was the deciding factor in, uh, in getting everything going. Wow. Because that was one of the things I was wondering about as you were talking, because I know you had mentioned this before about how confidence, like it, there was an, a confidence issue to get in front of clients and to kind of take over that lead advisor. So these these clients who reached out to you, that that was really what it took? Or were there other things that kind of added to your confidence along the way? I mean, I think, you know, over that year that we worked together, I mean, that was, there was a lot of client facing work done. And so I think, you know, the accumulation of working with all of those clients and really starting to get out in front of the clients. So I had a year to kind of build up that confidence and really figure out my communication style with clients and how I was going to interact with them and kind of tweaking that and making sure that I was, you know, taking into consideration personality types and, and adjusting, you know, my methodology for communicating with them based on that. And so I had, you know, a good amount of time to do that. And so by the time this all rolled around and they were, you know, they called me, you know, I, no one obviously had given me feedback saying, you're doing really great at this. <laughs> so to hear them say that was like, that was what I needed, that kind of, you're doing great. You know, you should keep doing this. So you finish up these 30 days. Um, and so do you have a good sense that you're going to be starting your own firm at this point? I do. Yeah. So that, so, uh, sorry, I totally get sidetracked. That, so that Friday, everything happened Monday morning, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, they, you know, are the days they call me. And so Wednesday, that Wednesday, um, I started uh, drafting all of my documents. I, you know, I signed up for my, um, you know, IART account. I started drafting my ADV, getting all of that stuff together, my U4, gathering all the documents, everything I was going to need to submit to the state. And then it was just a rat race to how quickly I could get it done. And so how long did that take you? Too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, you know, given that I had my business plan all set and ready to go, and I was working diligently and doing everything I could as fast as I could, um, the, the good old state of California had recently gone on a hiring frenzy in the uh, California Department of Business Oversight, who handles California Registered Advisors. And I uh, was saddled with a guy who had been on the job for two weeks. And so that process was just a nightmare because he had no idea what he was doing. And the only way to get information back from him was to pester him via email and then he would actually do it. And so it ended up what should have been probably a four week process ended up taking about 10 weeks. Um, you know, and he, 
it was just it was just a bunch of nonsense that didn't need to happen. Um, but you know, I, I was at the mercy of the CBO. I, there was nothing I could do but just kind of say, okay, any time you're ready to get things done here. You have no income coming in at this point. So what? I mean, did you pick up a side job or were you just 100% all in on this? That was, uh, so that, <laughs> so that happened the, uh, the beginning of, of October, right? And so I had enough money to get me through October. And then I made that phone call that I swore to myself as a 33-year-old woman that I would never make. And uh, I called up mom and I said, hey, mom, you know that offer you extend to me pretty much every day to move back in with you? I think I'm going to take you up on it finally. <laughs> wow. So I, uh, a couple of weeks later, I actually moved back in with my mom. Um, and, you know, I thought if I'm going to give my clients sound advice and, and, and kind of requests of them to, to compromise certain things when they need to meet an objective, I've got to take my own advice, right? I can't sit here and say, do this and then, you know, be irresponsible with my own financial life. That just, it, it didn't sit right with me. That's a hard thing for somebody to do is to go back and move in with their parents. What did, did, maybe this is reflecting more on me than anything else. But like, what did people around you think? Like what, what, like you have other planners, you have this network that you've built out. Like, were they aware of what was happening? For the most part, yeah. At that point, um, I, I had kind of become a little bit of a recluse and I wasn't, um, I wasn't as you know socially engaged, both professionally and personally, at that point, just because I was dealing with so much. And by nature, I'm I'm a relatively you know, like I said, I'm an introverted person, and and I, I do very much value quiet time. And so, kind of going through the stress of all this, I I, I kept to myself a little bit, um, you know. But when I when I did engage with friends and and other colleagues and trusted professionals and explain to them, like it, to them, it was like, oh, duh, no brainer. Of course. And they're all just like, well, be thankful that you actually have someone, you know, who's willing to let you move in with them and not pay rent and all of this jazz. So it was just, it was support all around. I mean, I never encountered one ounce of negativity or questioning or anything. Everyone was so supportive and so understanding and so great, um, which obviously made the process go that much smoother, you know, mentally and, and, you know, financially, all of those things. It just, it worked out really well. So when did you officially open your doors for your new company? So officially January 2nd, uh, 2017. Okay. So is this, this moment of just euphoria, like you finally have a company set up now? It was pure elation. I got the go ahead from the state. My website was uh, active and live. Everything was in place. And I just was counting down the days until I got that first client. But it was um, crickets, crickets for for a bit, and uh, I started to get a little scared there. Not gonna lie, I was I was a little paranoid, you know, as January went by, and then February went by, and nothing. That's such a hard place to be. <laughs> so you're not bringing in any money. You have this whole business plan put together. Were you doing marketing at this point? I wasn't doing marketing per se. I was, you know, I had had listings on all like the NAPA, FPA, CFP. Um, you know, I was going to FPA meetings and, and looking into joining other networking groups. And I was reaching out to all of my contacts, um, clients I'd worked with in the past, friends, family, everyone. Um, and, you know, it's, I started to get some inquiries, which was great. 
But what I didn't necessarily account for mentally was that that time period between when someone first contacts you and when they ultimately end up deciding to be a client, right? And so it's not as if they contact me on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday we're signing a contract. So that actually has happened before, but like that's not how it usually happens, right? I mean, what are the statistics? 3% of people are ready to like sign on the dotted line right away. Everyone else, it it could be any at any point. So did clients from the um, firm where you were working at before, did they join you? Not exactly. To date, I've worked with four clients that I worked with at this uh, at the previous firm, um, but they were all clients that I had worked with in a limited capacity then, and again in a limited compa- capacity now. They were all looking for a you know a refresh on their budgeting and cash flow projections, or a refresh on their investment analysis kind of thing. So those were very limited scope engagements that were kind of a one-time deal. So let's talk about these two months. So can, can you talk more about what that experience was like? You know, as much as I enjoy roller coasters, and I really do, I find them very fun. Um, but this roller coaster hasn't been as much fun. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, it's it's done everything from left me in the fetal position crying to nearly vomiting out of fear And, uh, you know, that's not a really good place to be mentally, but, you know, at the end of the day, I've never been happier. Honestly, I have never been happier than I am right now, and I would not change a thing. You know, looking back on everything that's happened over the past couple of years, you know, has led me to this point, and I've learned a lot of valuable lessons, and and I'm happy. So, so many questions. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about this so it, during those times because I think you know this is the real side of being an entrepreneur you know this that you said vomiting in fear and and crying in a fetal position I mean that's pretty strong emotions but that's you know that that is what it is um how I heard somebody you know you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows sometimes in the same day um, how do you deal with that? Like from a self-care perspective, like how do you, how do you, how do you handle that? I, I don't even know. I mean, <laughs> I, I wish I had some sort of magical, like, this is what I do and it cures me right away kind of thing. It's just, it's more or less, you know, I think it depends on every, the state of affairs at the moment, kind of what's going on in my life in that moment. And, you know, for me, I have four nieces and nephews who are, you know, ranging in age from one to seven at this point, and they are just little, like, balls of smiles. And so, you know, typically when you're having a really rough day, looking at a kid smiling and laughing and giggling is really wonderful for the psyche, you know. So on those hard days, I literally would just go over to my brother's house, sit down with the kids and say, get my mind off of things. And then we would play with their dolls or their G.I. Joes or whatever it was that month. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I love that. Well, and I love the realization that there's no easy fix to some of these problems. Sometimes you just got to go through it. Yeah. You know, and I have a really hard time shutting my brain off. Like there's no, there's no, you know, I go into the office at nine, I leave at five. And when I flip that light switch off, my brain goes off with it. It's, it's a 24 seven, you know, thought process. It just doesn't just shut off. It's constantly looking at what, you know, how can I make things better? Or, you know, oh, I got to do this for this client is it, it never leaves you. It's always there. And so, you know, to this day, I, I still struggle with how to kind of separate, you know, work and my clients from, 
my life and and so it's not bogging me down and and stopping me from enjoying you know just the things that give me joy and and it's been it's been a really tricky you know process of figuring out what that looks like and uh i'll let you know when i figure it out (laughs) please do we'll have a whole nother podcast on that (laughs) (laughs) oh so let's talk about so you you do have clients we know that from the beginning um so when did you start getting clients? How did clients start coming to you? Like, what has that been like? It's it again that roller coaster. It's uh, you know, so I signed my very first con- uh, uh, client signed their contracts on uh, February twenty eighth, and then March just turned into like some sort of sick twisted joke, and I ended up signing I think nine clients that month. Whoa. And so, yeah, it was, it was an onslaught. It was just madness at that point. You know, part of it, I had had, I had worked with a client um, at the previous firm who sought me out. And so it was somewhat unrelated to her. But, um, you know, when I, when I opened my doors, I sent an email to, to all my folks and I just kind of let them know what was going on. And she was, unbeknownst to me, plastered it all over her Facebook. And, you know, she, she is an entrepreneur herself and, and a, a, a wedding photographer. So she had a ton of reach on her Facebook. And uh, I think three of her friends and or previous clients um, reached out to me almost immediately. And I mean, that caught me off guard, because I had no idea she'd even done that. I was like, hey, where'd you get my information? They're like, oh, so and so I was like, really? Um, And so to this, I'm I'm forever indebted to her and you know, her and her husband who are such amazing people. Um, So between them, and then again, to my great surprise, I joined NAPFA because, you know, through XYPN, they say, okay, you can join this. And, and I, I thought, well, it's a, it's a benefit provided through my membership in XYPN. I, I'm going to do it. It's, you know, it's free. Why not? And um, I started, I started getting flooded with inquiries from NAPFA. I was getting probably one a week, which again, I did not anticipate. I had no idea because I had been a member of FPA and, you know, been on the, the CFP board search engine, and I would get maybe one every two months. And I thought, well, that's probably what's going to happen here. And no, quite the opposite. Wow. So you, have you gotten clients from the NAPFA website? I don't know the exact numbers. I should actually look at that. But I've gotten at least six clients. I'd say at least six clients from NAPFA. Wow. So how many clients are you servicing now? Year to date, I, I have 32 clients. Um some of which were just kind of a project one-time deal, and then some of which are, you know, ongoing financial planning and or investment management. So um, 32 more than I thought I'd have. (laughs) (laughs) That's so impressive. And especially considering your first client signed on February 28th of this year, and we're recording this at the end of October, 2017. So, I mean, that's, that's really impressive. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah, it it surprised me as well. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about how you structured your company, that business plan that you started how many years ago in your CFP courses. Does your practice reflect that business plan? For the most part, it does. You know, the, the business plan um, definitely takes more of a, a bigger picture view, right? So it it. it essentially is lined up kind of as, as my ideal practice as I see it kind of when it's in, you know, it's, it's ideal or optimal uh, working. So it's basically set up as if like I am 
completely successful and I've gotten to a certain point and can implement some of these things and, and projects and programs that I want to implement. So it's kind of, it's kind of like that, that ideal scenario, not necessarily the beginning stages. And I know some, some folks have said, you know, you create a business plan based on kind of where you want to be at the beginning. But for me, it was like, well, I'm, no, I want to, I'm going to create a business plan for like the ideal business structure, meaning multiple people involved, um, different types of programs that I'm offering. And so it's kind of like more of what I'm striving to get to than, you know, kind of that first step. So let's talk about your niche because you have a special niche. Can you share what that is and how, how that became your niche? So I've, I've long been the underdog uh, my entire life. And I think that's really what's led me to focus on underserved communities. Um, and so it's primarily the LGBTQ community and young professionals with like a, a side order of single women, <laughs> um, either widows, uh, widows or um, divorcees. And, uh, you know, these, these communities have, have long been ignored for the most part um, until recently, you know, as we see this next gen wave of uh, advisors coming in and, and realizing they're, you know, there are these demographics that just aren't getting service there there's you know aren't enough advisors out there who are focusing on them for one reason or another you know young professionals in particular because if you look at the typical advisor you know they've got that five hundred thousand dollar minimum or they won't talk to you kind of thing and you know young professionals just you know unless they've inherited money or you know are the next tech startup whiz just don't have those assets but they need the guidance right and so you know, having been an underdog my entire life, I thought, you know, it would be perfect for me to work with clients who are, who have kind of been the underdog as well. People that have, you know, kind of been, you know, thrown to the wayside and said, no, you don't have, you know, what we want. We don't want to work with you because you don't have X, Y, or Z, or because we don't understand you. Um, You know, those kinds of situations. You designed your firm knowing who you wanted to serve. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So what's you? How are you uniquely serving them where other firms don't? You know, since marriage is now legal for, you know, anyone, regardless of whether they're marrying a man or a woman and whatever, um, you know, it's definitely taken that, you know, unique planning element out of the equation, which is great, right? You know, a lot of people when this happens said, oh, well, there's no need for advisors who specialize in working with, you know, the LGBT community because they essentially have all the same rights um, and everything is as as straight folks. And, you know, you can do all, you know, you don't need all these fancy planning techniques anymore. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily just about having the deeper understanding of what those special planning techniques may be in order to kind of put them, you know, level the playing field with this, you know, the heterosexual counterparts. It's the walking into someone's office and wondering whether they're going to judge you or accept your life and who your partner is. It's wondering if saying my husband, if you're a man, is okay, or if that's going to set off red flags uh, for someone, or whether they're going to treat you equally. It's that common ground that they they come to me and they understand, you are not going to judge me. You have experienced much of the same things I've experienced all my life as a member of the LGBTQ community, and you understand where I'm at, where I'm coming from, what my needs are, what my experience is. And to me, that's more important. And I think that, you know, again, as, you know, as far as the LGBTQ clients I have, it's the same thing. It's that they knew I wasn't going to look at them and go, I'm sorry, you're what now? <laughs> when a woman introduced her wife and not her sister. Right. 
you know, on your website, on your homepage, which I love your website, people should definitely go check that out. The first sentence on your homepage, it just struck me as very deliberate. And, and I was so, it just, I feel like there's a story behind it. And maybe, maybe that's the whole way you approach everything, but it says, you know, we're folk, it says, um, you know, the bold is hello, you know, we're Equitas Financial and we have the financial help you're looking for. Focused, uh, focused wholeheartedly on the principle of equality. You know, we're an independent family firm. Um, but I love that phrase focused wholeheartedly on the principle of equality. Can you talk more to that or what's, what's really behind that? You know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, you know, I, I came out of the closet, uh, 20 years ago, uh, this month actually. And so I've experienced 20 years of what it's like to be, um, a non-heterosexual person in this world, right? And seeing and experienced the discrimination and the, and the looks and the questioning and the, you know, different types of attitudes across the board. I also have a lot of friends whose families, you know, are not from the U.S. who are culturally different, right? And so for me, my biggest thing is leveling the playing field. I want everyone to have the same start. I want everyone to have the same access. You know, there's no reason why Tom and Nancy should have like a head start or access to, you know, services that, you know, Jim and Bob, you know, don't have access to. Right. And so the, the name of my firm, Equalis, um, is a play on the Latin word Equalis, which is Latin for equal. And so my mission is, is to provide that equality. I want everyone to be on the same playing field and, and to recognize that despite our differences, we all deserve the same treatment, the same access to information, the same access to resources and the same everything. There's no reason why it should be any different for any one person. Oh, I love it so much. And I love how powerful that is and how, I mean, it's the, on your website, it's the first thing that you're leading with. Like, I, oh, that's so cool to me. Thank you. Looking at your firm, do you have minimums or how, how do you, how do you structure that? I, so I don't have any minimums and, you know, unlike most advisors, especially in the, the LA area where, you know, there's a lot of big money here and, and people have a certain expectation of, of what an advisor is going to look like and present themselves in their office and all that jazz. I kind of do the exact opposite of that. Um, so no minimums. I don't keep a traditional office space. And, and that's in large part due to a lot of research. And even my own experience with clients is that People are more inclined to affect positive change when they're in an environment that they're comfortable in, right? So sitting in a conference room uh, with super bright white halogen lights and this massive table and white walls usually is not their comfort zone, right? And it, it, is, it does not reduce stress. And we all know most folks, when they talk about money, they tend to, to, it tends to stress them out. You know, so one thing, you know, what a couple's fight most over? Money. Right. So the idea is that I want to reduce those stressors. I want them to be comfortable because I know that it's going to help them to make better decisions. Mm, that's really neat. So do you have an office where you meet clients at? I don't. And it's, you know, it's funny because in the, the age of technology, you, you would think that, uh, you know, clients would want to meet remotely and we, you know, we can re we can do FaceTime or, you know, any number of, you know, online resources do these things. But I don't. I find that clients don't necessarily want that. And so what I offer is I say, hey, um, you know, I will meet you in a place you're most comfortable with. And whether that's their house, 
their office or a local coffee shop that that is typically where you know those three places are where they tend to 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 go most and um i travel to them and so your clients are choosing to meet with you in person instead of virtually is that right it is you know it's it's funny because we would think with you know people especially my clients in their 20s and 30s that are more comfortable with technology that they would they would be totally fine and into meeting remotely because you know then you can sit there in your pajamas you don't have to leave whatever it it just tends to be easier but I find that they still want to like poke me so to speak to make sure I'm real (laughs) they want to have that physical interaction to make sure I'm not a robot um and to just kind of have that more you know it's it's a more intimate vibe right when you meet with someone you know, and you're, and you're sitting there in the living room and they're telling you kind of, you know, this is how they grew up with money and, and this is how they value money and this is what's important to them, right? They, they, they would rather do that to your face than sitting, you know, on a computer looking at you. And so I've, I've accepted that. And, you know, at this point, I, I essentially cater to that. If they want to do that, then, you know, I, I, I honestly like meeting in person as well. So it's probably a little bit of me being... <laughs> insistent upon that as well. And so how are your clients paying you right now? Right now I have um, probably close to two dozen clients that are on um, an ongoing retainer type planning relationship and they all pay me uh, via advice pay. And so that's, you know, the new payment processor that allows, you know, advisors to charge or, or to collect payment from clients I do have some of my old school clients um, who who prefer to pay uh, via check, and I usually will only accept that if it's for a one-time uh, payment. But if it's for a recurring, ongoing planning, I I'm adamant that they use Advice Pay. Do you have like a minimum fee for clients? I don't necessarily have a minimum necessarily. Um, I, I I like to keep it, you know, at least at at twelve hundred dollars a year because if you break that down hourly you know, it, it makes the most sense and anything. So then it starts basically at a hundred. And then I think my, my, the highest fee I'm charging is two fifty a month. Um, so a hundred to two fifty is the range. And usually they'll fall somewhere, um, in that range. And so are you managing assets as well? I am managing assets. Um, it's not as much of a focus. And so, you know, it's the non-salesy person in me in that I, I do have quite a few clients who have um, who have assets, uh, mostly at Vanguard that, that are just kind of sitting there hanging out in, in Vanguard funds who, you know, I gave the option of doing investment management for, um, but they ultimately ended up choosing just doing the um, ongoing planning. And so that's that's, you know, that's, I always give them the choice, right? I kind of lay out all of the options. I explain the pros and cons to each, the cost to each, and let them decide what's in their best interest. As long as I feel like I've educated them on all of their options and what it means for them, I'm, I'm okay with whatever they choose. And I try not to push them into one or the other, because again, don't want to be that, that cheesy salesperson. Um, and so at this point, um, I have, I have just a handful of clients who I manage assets for and, and, you know, year to date, I've, I've got a million dollars on the books and another 1.4 under contract that I'm transitioning um, over to TD Ameritrade. That's great. I mean, especially with, I mean, getting your first client not that long ago, like that's really impressive. Like I keep saying, it's, (laughs) 
it, it keeps surprising me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's look to the future. Like, what what do you have planned, or like, what what are what's your vision going forward? Because I've been so focused on this year, and because I had such a a large shift and unexpected amount of clients sign with me this year, I honestly haven't been able to do a lot of forward business planning. Um, you know, it, it's just, I'm focusing right now, you know, 90% of it is on my current clients and making sure that I'm taking care of them, servicing them and, and that their needs are met. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, once I feel like I've, I've been able to kind of gotten, get on top of that, I'll probably switch focus, but I've actually kind of made the decision recently that I'm not going to take on any more clients in November or December. So I can make sure that come January 1st, I'm all caught up. All clients are in a good space. And then 2018 kind of will start fresh and um, go from there. I mean, I have some targets that I've set, you know, ideal numbers and it'd be nice to hit them, but I'm trying not to put too much pressure on myself in terms of meeting you know, numbers, right. Numbers that are hypothetical, you know, exactly. And and again, because I feel like, you know, based on what other advisors have showed me of what they're doing, I feel like I'm, I'm a little ahead of the curve in my first year that like, again, that helps me to not put so much pressure Mm -hmm. on myself for year two. So looking at, you know, we're, so looking to the new planners, what have been, I mean, cause you, Obviously, you know, we touched on the value of your network and I'm sure your network has quite a few new planners in it as well. What are, I don't want to say issues, but what are some things that you would caution uh, new planners about? The number, the number one thing I hear from, from some new planners and even kind of like a secondhand comment from other advisors who've, who've spoken to new planners is that recent graduates feel a little emboldened by by technology and resources on the market to, you know, to, to, to feel and think that they can open their own practice relatively soon after graduating from college. And to me, that would be a huge mistake. And, and I say that because I had, you know, eight and a half years of experience behind me of learning every facet of the business, right? So if you come out of school, you know, and you're in your early 20s, and you think that, yeah, you know, there's this resource here that'll help me do it. I should totally do it. Don't. I think it's incredibly important to, you know, and I don't want to be that person, that like older person that says, pay your dues, you know, put in the time, because that's not necessarily what it is. But I think it's really important to learn from the generation of planners before you, right? And so from my experience, again, it's like learn what you don't want to do, but learn what you do want to do as well. And so I think it's really important to um, gain that experience. It's invaluable and it'll, it'll help you from, you know, avoiding certain mistakes that you may make had you not had that experience. Mm. That's great. So what would be your advice for new planners? I know you kind of hit it on a little bit, but for somebody starting out or thinking about financial planning as a career, what, what would you tell them? I think the first, you know, the first bit of advice is, is to obtain, you know, the CFP, go through the coursework. And if anything, you know, especially if you're a career transitioner, you know, go through the coursework and, you know, that's, yeah, it'll cost you, you know, maybe a couple thousand dollars out of pocket to go through the courses. But what it'll do is give you that high level overview of what the industry is all about. And if at the end of it, it's, you know, not something you see yourself doing, well, you just educated yourself and spent a few bucks, but you're no worse off, right? 
Um, but I think getting the CFP designation is hands down the most important thing. And, and a lot of these colleges are actually, you know, uh, have joint programs now where it's, it's your, your undergraduate degree in combination with all of the courses required to sit for the CFP examination, which I think is fantastic. And if only they had had that when I was in college, that would have been wonderful. But, you know, it exists now. And so for, for you know, college students to go through and, and, and have that fundamental um, knowledge and understanding of what it is is really great. You know, and I think the, the experience requirement, obviously, before being able to use the CFP marks is, is very necessary. But I think having that, um, you know, is really important. It, it really is the gold standard um, for, you know, proving your, your credibility and your knowledge. When you took the CFP exam, where did you take that in your career and kind of what was your experience around that? So I had a, a, a fun roundabout path with, with my CFP journey. Um, I, I started taking the online courses through the College for Financial Planning right after I graduated from college, which was mistake number one. You know, I, I didn't let myself breathe after school, you know, school after school after school, and I should have given myself more time. Um, but what I also realized was that I needed something a little more structured um, I didn't have the self-discipline to take an online course, and I also what that made me realize was that there was no way I was going to retain retain the information, and I was, you know, undoubtedly going to fail the exam if this is, you know, the path I kept taking. And so, I decided to enroll in this uh, UCLA Personal Financial Planning Certificate Program, um, which again was an in-person deal with other classmates. So it forced me to be there every week and to pay attention and, and to have this structure around it, which was really helpful for me. And I mean, not everyone needs that, but I definitely needed it. And, you know, it's, I think it's important to recognize that yourself if you're the same type of person. And so I, I went through that and I finished my last course in the winter of 2011. But uh, that was actually before the practicum course was required uh, by the CFP board. So UCLA just added it in there, which I thought was great. Um, they were a little ahead of the curve. And so because it wasn't required, I was actually able to register and sit for the November 2011 um, exam, which I did, uh, despite being incredibly unprepared. Um, and so, you know, that was also, you know, back in the days where the exam was on paper, and it was over two days and 10 hours. And it was a nightmare. Like I've never been more uncomfortable in any sort of environment than that. It's just sitting there with like a hundred other people listening to two hours of instructions every day. You know, I, it was, it was terrible. And, and thank God it caught up with modern technology and it was like, you can do it on a computer now because that was terrible. <laughs> um, but needless to say, uh, I failed. I did not pass it that first time around. And you know, I knew it going in that I wasn't prepared. And, and I, had, again, resolved myself to, to another reality that I wasn't going to pass. But, you know, by the time I'd realized that it was too late to reschedule or get a refund. And so I ultimately looked at it as a very expensive practice test. You know, it set me up to say, okay, this is what it's like. These are what the questions are like, which I thought, you know, again, I was trying to turn it into a positive, like, yes, you failed. But you can now take the experience, you know what the test is like, you know what the environment is like, and use that to your advantage for when you take it the next time. So when did you retake the exam then? Well, <laughs> several years later. <laughs> My original intention, obviously, was to take it within six months. But, um, you know, I, 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 for one reason or another, I made an impulsive decision to apply to grad school. And, uh, 
got in and then realized that there was no way that I could work full time at 40 hours a week, take two course graduate level courses per semester <laughs> and study for the CFP exams. So I decided that I would put the CFP exam off until I had finished graduate school. And, uh, you know, that worked out pretty well. And so six months after graduation, um, I, I tackled that beast once again. And uh, fortunately, this time I came out the victor and actually passed it. Uh, again, despite my, my feeling of, of failure as I went into it, um, you know, the... <laughs> Sometimes I wish I could get the video from the Prometric Center that like records a button in front of you to make sure you because to see my reaction to like that screen. Oh, by this time it was on, you know, you know, technology was on computers. So to see that screen that actually popped up and said you passed, I, I'm pretty sure I nearly fell out of the chair. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things kind of came together and you know, fortunately I was literally gonna have to question whether this really was the path for me if I didn't pass that that second time around. Any other pieces of advice or thoughts that you have for new planners? Yeah, I mean, if school is your thing, I think getting an advanced degree is probably a good idea. And, you know, again, a lot of programs nowadays, ha you know, they kind of integrate the CFP curriculum into master's programs if you, you know, if your undergraduate degree was not, you know, did not include it. And I think it's, you know, it's another way, especially for, you know, younger students or younger advisors to really, you know, boost your marketability and add value for your clients. Um, you know, it was something I, I looked into because, you know, I was, I was a younger woman and, you know, I, I realized that I, I also looked like I was probably eight years younger than I am. And so I, I you know, I had this fear that no one was going to take me seriously. And I thought, I thought, well, if I get a master's degree, like that'll give me some credibility, right? It'll give me a little more, um, you know, influence with these future employers and even clients, right? And so I just said, this is probably going to be better for me in the long run. Um, you know, and, and I, so I got my master's in taxation, which let me tell you what a ball of fun that was. <laughs> um, but the reason that made sense to me was because, you know, I, I'd been, you know, I throughout the years looked into getting my MBA, you know, which is the go to advanced business degree, but it didn't make sense because how is an MBA going to help my financial planning clients, right? Whereas the master's in tax really helps me to do advanced planning and uh, strategy is doing, you know, analysis and whatnot. So I thought, you know, that really provides a value to my clients, whereas an MBA or anything else really wouldn't have that effect. And so are you glad that you did that? I'm incredibly glad. It's It's been really helpful. And again, like there's been several instances where, you know, someone will make a comment about having my, you know, a tax degree and, or master's and they'll say, wow, yeah, no, I, I this makes things way better. I, I really trust you. Like I, I, you know, I think you do have the knowledge and, you know, it's been, it's been a bit of a confidence booster for me you know, knowing that, you know, this, this advanced degree that I got is, is helping give my clients confidence in me. And so for me personally, it's definitely helped. And, you know, to this day, I'll, I'll be 34 in December, and, and most people still think I'm in my early 20s. So, you know, I, whatever, whatever advantage I can have in that friend, I'm going to take. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, anything else or any other things you want to mention before we jump off? Yeah, I mean, a few other resources, like I mentioned earlier, you know, joining the FPA is a really, really, really wonderful thing to do because you're able to make connections and, and maybe not necessarily people who get you clients or, or lead to clients, but people who 
can give advice, you know, people who've been around the industry for a while who can kind of run ideas by bounce ideas off of, you know, also, you know, the continuing education component of it is always great. And, you know, they have opportunities like the diversity scholarship of which I, uh, was a recipient of in, in 2012, which was amazing. You know, they, they you know, paid for me to go to the FPA annual conference. That was my, you know, foray into the conferences. And it was a mind blowing experience, something, you know, the FPA conferences is, is a fantastic conference that I think everyone should go to at least once, um, if not more, you know, and then getting involved in the board of directors and kind of giving back to the profession. And, and you know, again, casting, you know, a wider net in terms of your network. You know, you, you really have to put yourself out there, you know, and for me, especially like it is uncomfortable and foreign as it was. I mean, I'm still reaping the rewards to this day for putting myself out there in 2000. What was it? 10. Um, and I, so I think it's really important to do that. And then in terms of, you know, resources that exist, New Planner Recruiting is a fantastic company. Caleb Brown, who runs New Planner Recruiting, is, is such a phenomenal human. You know, his mission is to connect or bridge that gap between new planners and you know advisory firms and he's done such a great job of building this community and working with advisors and helping them to understand the value of hiring recent college graduates where most people would kind of just go no I don't I don't I don't want to you know train someone and spend all this money to do it right and so they, they focus on, on candidates with zero to five years of experience and, and help place them with firms who, who have a great culture and are trying to cultivate the next generation of planners. And so even though I was never able to use his service, um, he was always a really great source of information, you know, and, and so I really encourage any new planner to go check out their website. I believe it's newplannerrecruiting.com. And they, they're constantly posting uh, jobs or, you know, opportunities across the country, as well as, you know, they have a newsletter and whatnot that they send out that's always got really cool, you know, bits of information, tips, tricks, ideas, things to boost your marketability and whatnot. Um, you know, and I think that's, it's incredibly helpful. And, you know, I just, I really love what they're doing over there. So check them out. Absolutely. And they have so many great resources, even just on their website. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Anything else? I guess the last thing I would say is because technology is is at the forefront of, of financial, you know, financial advising at this point, and, and there's so many different offerings, and it's kind of important to know, like, one thing I always tried to do was download all of the free trials of every software. That way, when you go into an interview, you know, with company X, and they're and they use, you know, X, Y, and Z CRM, or what have you, you can say, yes, I've seen that software, I know what it does, you can familiarize yourself with these softwares, you know, and I really think that'll give you a leg up in an interview. If you can say confidently that you yes, you know, the software, you've used it, you're comfortable with it, you can learn it really quickly. Um, and again, it's free, that free is a really good word. <laughs> yes, free, just do the trials, don't get crazy. <laughs> Most of them will offer some sort of trial a week, two weeks, whatever. Just, you know, get an idea of it, understand what it is so you can have that advantage. I want to personally invite you to join the FPA Activate Facebook group. This group is a place where you can find others like you. Not only that, but we're showing you how we do what we do, meaning we're bringing you some of the best financial planners to show you what it looks like when we do real financial planning. There's some great stuff going on there that you don't want to miss, so be sure to join. As always, thank you for listening.